to formally begin, I, I, want, to be, I want to read to you a, a, a somewhat random list of books found in the Old Testament. There's Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. There's Joshua and Judges. There's books like Proverbs and the Psalms. There's, there's books with the, the, the names of individuals like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. There's somewhat minor prophets like Joel and Amos and Obadiah. How should a Christian relate to these books? Well, if you're like a congregation of one of the pastors I sometimes like to listen to, he's out on the West Coast, you really don't know how to relate to the Old Testament. He tells the story of how when he was planning a a, a preaching series on the book of Job, members of his congregation thought he was getting ready to tell the story of Steve Jobs. (laughs) Christians often struggle to know what to do with the Old Testament. The crux of the issue is that when when we think about the Old Testament, we have a tendency to reduce it to law. We think about the Ten Commandments. We think about God giving other commandments to his people. We think God's people, we think of them failing to meet those expectations and being exiled to foreign lands as a result. We think about the blessings of obedience and the consequences of disobedience. So as we reduce the Old Testament to law, Many Christians experience fear and failure. You know, God has a high standard for his people. There are serious consequences for God's people when they do not obey. And so when you think about the Old Testament, you think about command after command that you fail to meet and you're crushed. You identify with a story told about the late author, Mark Twain. He had a recurring nightmare. He'd wake up profusely sweating with an image of an enormous Bible over his body. The Bible with all its law, with all the messages of the prophets and teachers, it was crushing him. Others, as you reduce the Old Testament to law, you tend to downplay or dismiss the significance of it. I mean, the Old Testament, that was about actions God's people had to perform. The Old Testament was about a God who poured out wrath on his people. The Old Testament is an ancient text. It's hard to read. It's it's the Old Covenant. So it carries little weight today. The New Testament, it's about grace. The New Testament is is about a God who poured out grace on his people. It's the New Covenant. The New Testament. That's the text Christians should read to relate to God. How should a Christian relate to the Old Testament? For that matter, how should a Christian relate to God's law? Pastor Timothy Keller, he he identifies two faulty approaches individuals often take in how they relate to God's law. One, licentiousness. 
or what theologians sometimes refer to as antinomianism. That's the fancy term uh, individuals use to define this position. In this position, one de-emphasizes the connection between the Old Testament and Christ. One is prone to dismiss the moral law and commands found in Scripture. A Christian has been forgiven. A Christian needs to focus on grace. So they don't need to worry about sin. So rather than learning the commands of God, rather than reading the Old Testament, rather than being convicted of how one is rejecting God, the individual who embraces licentiousness downplays and dismisses how these types of things play out altogether. The second position is legalism. When embracing this type of position, an individual often breaks the Old Testament down to commands. And these commands, they either justify one's standing with God. When you feel that you've met the standards of the law, you feel confident. You feel pretty good about life. You believe others should live the way you do. They should parent like you. They should read their Bible like you. They should manage their money like you because you live according to the law. However, when you don't meet the standards of the law, like Twain, you're crushed. You're filled with shame. You struggle with self-pity. Keller says, legalism says that we have to live a holy good life in order to be saved or in order to please God. Antinomianism or licentiousness says that because we are saved, because we are a Christian, we don't have to live a holy good life. How should a Christian relate to the Old Testament? For those of you who don't know me, My name is Paul Gardner, and I serve as one of the pastors here. The last several weeks, we've been working our way through a section of Scripture called the Sermon on the Mount. And the text Ben read earlier that we're going to unpack this morning helps Christians understand how they are to relate to the Old Testament. What the Israelites commonly referred to as the law and the prophets. Now, before I get too far, let me say this. Pastor Chris has generously delegated the preaching of a weighty text. (laughs) And a weighty question. How should a Christian relate to the Old Testament? One commentary I read says, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. That's what we're in this morning. It does not provide a complete answer to this vexed and multi-layered question. Other biblical texts must be examined as well. But this is one of the most important texts in the discussion. The compactness of this passage is at once its power and its difficulty. By virtue of its piety, contractive, contrastive statements, we get a large-scale snapshot of this issue. How should Christians relate to the Old Testament? But its brevity and super-concentrated collection of weighty terms and ideas means that every sentence is a spark that sets off a fire in a different direction. So, in preparation for this morning, I did ask our security team if the sprinkler system has been checked recently. 
They assured me it has. If, if sparks start shooting from the pulpit, the exits are located there and there. So, please know we will not provide a complete answer to this question. How does a Christian relate to the Old Testament? But we will provide some hooks based on this passage. So our big idea this morning is because Jesus came to fulfill the law, a follower of Christ rejects both legalism and licentiousness. To unpack this big idea, we will clarify two aspects of Jesus' ministry. One, Jesus didn't come to undermine the law. And two, Jesus recovers the proper understanding of the law. So let's start with Jesus didn't come to undermine the law. If you have your Bibles, if you have your apps, open them up to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. We will have the words on the screen, but if you'd like to follow along uh, individually, then, then open it up. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, one of the ways the law could be undermined is to de-emphasize the connection between Christ and the Old Testament law and prophets. As we learned earlier, this is actually a fundamental fundamental characteristic of licentiousness. A licentious person will often say something like, I follow Jesus as he's portrayed in the New Testament, but I don't follow the God of the Old Testament. Such a person downplays the connection between Christ and the Old Testament law and prophets. And such a position frees one from having to think about the consequences of disobeying God's moral law. For those who embrace such a position, Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law and prophets, but to fulfill them. He emphasizes the strongest of connections between himself and the law and the prophets. He even says the smallest details of the law. In our language, not even an apostrophe. Not even a comma. What you think is, might, might be the most insignificant aspect of the law. It will not pass away until all is accomplished. All of the law and prophets, the entire Old Testament, none of it will be abolished. Jesus did not come to undermine the law. Jesus begins these verses with the phrase, Do not think that. Why would Jesus' followers have such a thought? Why might they believe that Christ had come to abolish the law? Well, Jesus spoke with authority. An authority that didn't seem to be given to him by God, like all the other teachers of the law and like all the other prophets. Jesus spoke as though he was God. And Jesus challenged many popular notions of right and wrong. And he used a phrase like, But you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. He makes bold statements pronouncing freedom 
for those who were in captivity, forgiveness to those who struggled with sin, liberty to those who were in bondage. Jesus declares particular behaviors. We we saw this the past few weeks in the Beatitudes. He declares particular behaviors to be blessed and then connects those behaviors to promises. As Jesus' followers consider these proclamations and these teachings, they would naturally be tempted to believe Jesus had come to replace the law, that he had come to abolish what had been taught in the law and the prophets. And so into this potential misunderstanding, Jesus says, don't think that. The phrase in Greek is literally, never think that. When you're tempted to believe there is no connection between my ministry and the ministry of the law and the prophets, never think that. When you're tempted to believe you can pick and choose what parts of the law you want to obey and what parts you want to disobey, never think that. When you're tempted to believe all you need to do is read the New Testament because the Old Testament doesn't matter, never think that. And when you're tempted to downplay the connection between the old covenant and the new covenant, never think that. And when you're tempted to use my ministry to justify your licentious disposition, to justify sin in your life, never think that. Jesus combats a belief that his ministry is disconnected from the Old Testament law and prophets. And in so doing, he rejects the common belief of those who embrace licentiousness, that Christ is about grace and the Old Testament is about law. Rather than being disconnected from the law, Jesus says he fulfills it. Now, one of our challenges understanding what this means is that when we think of the law, our our minds fixate on things like lawyers. We fixate on things like judges. And we fixate on things like police officers. We focus on obeying the written law or disobeying the written law. What we don't think about is relationship or something called a covenant. A covenant includes restrictions and rules, but they are intertwined in relationship. Think of a a marital covenant. There's promises of commitment to one another in the context of a relationship. For the Jewish people, This is what the law and the prophets referred to. God's covenant with his people. And so for Jesus to say he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, he's not simply saying he demonstrates fulfilled obedience, although we'll talk about that. More than that, Jesus is saying God's covenant relationship with his people, it points to him. He is the fulfillment of that covenant. He he did not come to abolish the covenant. He did not come to usher in a separate covenant. He came to fulfill the old one. Jesus did not come to undermine the law. He does not disconnect his ministry from the ministry of the law and the prophets. So besides not disconnecting his ministry from the law and the prophets, there's another way Jesus doesn't undermine the law. Another way someone could undermine the law is with duplicitousness. Jesus could teach one thing and do something else. 
Or, or he might emphasize particular behaviors consistent with the law while neglecting others. In so doing, he would undermine the law. This past year, Michelle and I entered one of the scarier phases of, of parenting. We're teaching our oldest daughter how to drive. As we teach her how to drive, we teach her about driving laws in the state of Nebraska. We talk about how these laws are good. We talk about how they keep other drivers safe. We talk about how they keep the passengers in her car safe. But we know this isn't enough. As the manual says for parents teaching their kids to drive, it's not enough to say, do as I say. Children imitate their parents' behavior. So your driving should set a good example for your teen to emulate. It's one thing for me to talk about how the law is good, but my actions will either reinforce or refute my statements that the law is good. As I think about this, I'm reminded of moments when I texted my wife while my kids were looking on in the backseat of the car. Or I'm reminded of moments when we sped to family gatherings and I disregarded traffic laws because we were running late. And I'm reminded of a moment when I was sitting at a rather stink, rather lengthy stoplight, really long stoplight, near our old house in Bellevue with a six-year-old daughter in the back. And I chose to run that rather lengthy stoplight. It was really long. And I remember her confronting me, telling me when she gets married, she's going to marry someone who follows the law. Regardless of what I say about the law, when I break one of the laws, my behavior contradicts it. I undermine the law. I've relaxed the law. Jesus does not undermine the law in this manner. Rather, he says he is the fulfillment of it. Jesus is not like the rest of us. He fulfills it. He makes it complete. For he pursued the will of God perfectly. Even when he was rejected and betrayed by those closest to him, he marched to the cross. Unlike us, he didn't claim victim status. He embraced the status of a servant. And Jesus obeyed God's law perfectly. When Jesus was tempted to pursue glory and greatness, Jesus rejected the offer. He knew and testified the thing that mattered wasn't personal glory and personal greatness, but worshiping and serving the one who is truly glorious and great. And Jesus believed and trusted the word of God. When he had fasted for 40 days and Satan tempted him to turn stones to bread, Rather than succumbing to temptation to feel sorry for himself, rather than succumb to temptation to justify sin in his weakness, he trusted in the bread that matters. Every word that comes from the mouth of God. So if one of the, character, the fundamental characteristics of licentiousness is to disconnect following Christ from the law and the prophets, one of the fundamental characteristics of legalism is to reduce the law to adhering to specific behaviors. 
in particular, external behaviors or, or those behaviors that are seen by others. To combat such a belief, Jesus offers. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus reminds his followers, breaking one of the least of these commands undermines the entire law. Jesus doesn't do that. However, he identifies a particular group of people that do, the Pharisees, the legalists of his day. We know he's identifying the Pharisees because of what follows in this passage and because of how Jesus returns to this thought in Matthew chapter 23. The scribes and the Pharisees, they sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. The Pharisees' pursuit of the law was rooted in an internal motivation to impress others. Phylacteries were a a small leather box containing Hebrew texts indicating aspects of the law an individual had mastered. Fringes were a means for individuals to demonstrate, to show off to others how they were adhering to the law. In making their phylacteries broad in making their fringes long, in loving the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue, the Pharisees had twisted the meaning of the Old Testament law. The external actions the Pharisees pursued weren't necessarily wrong in and of themselves. It wasn't wrong to learn the law. It wasn't wrong to grow in obedience. However, the Pharisees did it to gain favor with God and to impress others. As such, they denied what was dirty and dark within their heart. They had deviated the law from its original meaning and purpose. External behaviors were falsely used as a measuring stick to determine if one was right with God and to determine if one was holy. Jesus said such a disposition, it is twisted, it is wrong, it is flawed. And it undermines the law. Jesus didn't do that. Many Christians today twist the law. I mean, we don't focus on the width of our phylacteries. Or the the places we sit when the church gathers. I mean, it'd be great if some of you in the back would come a a little more close. But we do embrace actions, particular actions, as a means to gain favor with God, or, or to feel righteous, or to feel holy, or, or to feel like I'm a good person. It's not that these actions are bad in and of themselves. It's just we pursue these actions with faulty heart motivations. What actions do you pursue to gain favor with God, or or as a measuring stick of your holiness, or to affirm that you are righteous. 
Maybe it's the frequency of how often you read your Bible. Or maybe it's the frequency of how often you have somebody over for dinner. Or maybe it's the amount of fighter verses you have memorized. Or how many non-Christian friends you are praying for. Or how you are doing caring for the poor. These, these categories are kind of the religious categories that we find righteousness in. But there's less religious categories too. It might be something like how hard we work. As we think about our righteousness with work, we think everybody should work as hard as we do. It might be the, the political affiliation we align with. You're better than everyone else because of the way you vote and how you navigate political conversations. It might be how you parent, how you care for the environment, how you school your kids, your stances on dating, the, the ways in which you drive. When you're doing well pursuing these external actions, you feel good. You feel worthy. You feel better than others. But the presence of external actions, it doesn't necessarily mean internal heart dispositions are pure and right and whole. It's possible, like the Pharisees, to lead a duplicitous life to twist the law, to focus on external actions while possessing internal heart motivations that are dirty and dark. This is not fulfilling the Old Testament law and prophets. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't undermine the law. He came to fulfill it. This brings us to the second aspect of Jesus' ministry. Jesus recovers the proper understanding of the law. This is what we read in verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The word exceed here, uh, Strong's Dictionary, one of, the, one of the best Bible resources to understand what words mean in Scripture, it, it defines this word as to superabound. So not just abound, not just exceed, but to super abound. I'm reminded of some of us who like to use phrases like, man, that was super helpful. Or my kids are super well behaved. Or, or, or you like to talk about how you're super happy. Apparently, this idea of putting super before another adjective is not all that novel and new since Strong's has been around since 1890. To enter the kingdom of heaven, one must have righteousness that exceeds, that superabounds that of the Pharisees. Their focus on external actions, it wasn't complete. In fact, it wasn't even close to what the law is getting at. Their understanding of the law was twisted. It was super low. So what is Jesus getting at? Jesus proceeds to offer six illustrations which we will unpack in future weeks to help his followers understand that he's not instituting a new law, but he's, he's working to recover a, a proper understanding of the Old Testament law. You thought fulfilling the law was simply not murdering. This is a twisted understanding of fulfilling the law. The correct way to understand the law is to not only avoid murder, but to also not get angry and bitter with brothers and sisters in Christ 
and brothers and sisters in your family. You thought fulfilling the law was simply not committing adultery. This is a twisted understanding of the law. The correct way to understand the law is to not only avoid adultery, but to, but to put to death all forms of lust in your heart. You thought because the law permitted divorce, fulfilling the law means there is freedom to pursue divorce when marriage gets hard. This is a twisted understanding of the law. The correct way to understand the law is to fight and to fight some more to preserve your marital covenant. On and on Jesus goes. The Israelites had twisted understanding of what it meant to fulfill the law. The Pharisees misunderstood the law, focusing on external actions. Jesus doesn't institute a new law. He restores the proper understanding of the old one. Jonathan Pennington, in his, he's, a, he's a scholar, a professor, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, calls such a position of relating to the law as whole person behavior that accords with God's nature, will, and coming kingdom. The righteous person is the whole person who does not only do the will of God externally, but more importantly, from the heart. And so Jesus just isn't just after the hands of his followers, nor is he after just their heads. He wants their hearts too. He's after the whole person. This isn't a new law. This is the proper understanding of the old one. Jesus, under, Jesus recovers the proper understanding of living under the law. So if that's the case... If Jesus is teaching his followers that the law calls people to embrace whole person behavior, how is he simply not like every other teacher or every other religion rooting righteousness in personal behavior? How is Jesus different than Buddha, who said to his followers on his deathbed, work hard to gain your salvation? Or how is he different than Confucius, who taught righteousness was attained by living according to a particular standard of wisdom? For that matter, how is, how is Jesus different than the Pharisees, who, as we read earlier, Jesus said of them, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. How is Jesus not simply giving us a new standard to achieve righteousness and a higher standard at that? One characteristic of legalism, we've said, is to reduce the law to behavior. Another characteristic of legalism is to equate the pursuit of such behavior to the pursuit of God. Listen to Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his commentary on the, on the, the Sermon on the Mount the cost of discipleship. It was the error of Israel to put the law in God's place, to make the law their God and their God a law. Traditional religion teaches the pursuit of external behavior is the pursuit of God. If we do good deeds and follow the right moral rules, God will bless us and save us. As long as we obey the law, God will love and accept me. As such, it is the law that gives life. It is the law that gives meaning. It is the law that fulfills. 
and it is the law that gives righteousness. As we've read, Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. This is a statement Jesus is using to proclaim he is greater than the law. It is a statement proclaiming his perfection and his completeness. And it is a statement of worth and worship. Rather than give worth and worship to the law, give worth and worship to the one who fulfills the law. The God who gives the law, unlike all the prophets and teachers before him, he fulfills the law. The God who gives the covenant, unlike every other teacher, unlike the Pharisees who break the covenant, he is the God who fulfills the covenant. And he's not like the Pharisees who didn't lift a finger. He gave his life for the covenant. Jesus helps us recover a proper understanding of the law. The law points to him. This is why we read the Old Testament, to understand who Jesus is and what he did for us. This is why we teach our kids the Old Testament at home and in First City Kids, because Jesus Christ is the word made flesh. He, not anybody else, is the one who fulfilled the law and the prophets. Jesus recovers and restores a proper understanding of the law. So another question. If Jesus fulfilled the law, why does adhering to the law matter? And why does it matter if I lust? Why does it matter if I get angry with my brothers and sisters? What's the big deal? If the error of legalism is to make the law God, the error of licentiousness is to make grace God. Grace, approval, acceptance. They are God. God is no longer God. God isn't the one who gives meaning and purpose. God isn't the one who gives righteousness. Grace is. Grace is disconnected from the one who gives grace. Grace is an end to itself. To clarify what I'm saying, let me read another excerpt from Dietrich Bonhoeffer's The Cost of Discipleship. And in doing so, he's coining this term, cheap grace. Let one be comforted and rest assured in his possession of grace. I should say Bonhoeffer is known for his sarcastic tone. Uh, So he's being sarcastic here. Let one be comforted and rest assured in his possession of grace. For grace alone does everything. Instead of following Christ, let the Christian enjoy the consolation of his grace. This is what we mean by cheap grace. The grace which amounts to justification of sin or excusing sin without the justification of the repentant sinner who departs from sin and from whom sin departs. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. Grace is not the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Grace is not what the law and the prophets point to. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He alone is God. 
The one who embraces licentiousness fails to connect grace to the one who delivered grace. The one who embraces licentiousness fails to recognize the proclamation of the kingdom isn't embrace grace. It is repent and believe the good news about God. Yes, the law has been fulfilled, and yes, I fail to fulfill it. But my response isn't to dismiss the significance of the Old Testament law altogether. It is to pursue holistic righteousness and holistic obedience. It is to recognize that when sin and darkness are present in my heart, that I want to rid myself of that wickedness and that sin. Because that sin put my Savior on a cross. That sin is not what my Savior was about. And so I'm empowered to put that sin and darkness to death. I'm empowered to repent of that and to live for something different. I don't want any part of it. So as we conclude, do you tend towards legalism or licentiousness? Maybe both. Are you more prone to worship the law as God? Or are you more prone to worship grace as God? Because Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the law, his followers are empowered to reject both legalism and licentiousness. He alone is worthy of our worship. 